We're going to continue on last week where we left off, but before we do that, and understand this, we're kind of in the tail end of this series, but one thing I didn't bring up in announcements, and I want to, uh, the folks from CMA are going to be up here talking next week, their, their Run for the Sun, it's their big annual fundraiser that they do, they raise funds for motorcycles for different ministries around the world, we actually got to be a part of that last year, and Ruth, and I'm sure you'll hear more about this next week, I don't want to steal their thunder, Ruth uh, received a motorcycle over there in the Philippines, which is cool, so it's helped their ministry tremendously um, so it's been great. So don't forget about that. One of the things I would encourage you to do is this week be praying about maybe what you could give to help with that, help with the different funds. They've been able to raise enough money the last couple of years, that just three years, three years in a row that they get to buy a motorcycle. So that's pretty cool. Uh, so yeah, it's a very cool thing that's going on. We were just got back from that convention down there, uh, which was which was great. And uh, one of the things that's interesting to me. Okay, so I went down there the last several weeks here. I've been I've been on the phone. I've got friends of mine that are in ministry in different various roles around the country and parts of the different parts of the world. And I'm always interested to hear what's going on with other ministries. What's taking place, you know. Um, you know, at the beginning of the year, I told you guys financially, we we're very strong. Like God has tremendously blessed us, which is the opposite of what a lot of churches are going through right now. Okay, just been struggles, which is fine. It's, you know, there's ebbs and flows. That doesn't mean anything. It's just where they are right now. And one of the things I've been talking to them about is like, you know, what is the Lord putting on your heart right now? And it was funny is these people that I have talked to, as well as hearing the different ministers down at CMA, just the guys who spoke, uh, tremendous preachers. Listen, if you ain't ever heard like old Southern Pentecostal preachers, my word, like it's, it's like nothing else. It's so good. It's so, it was great. But listening to them, and you know what keeps going back to everything? is that the church is deceived. That's the, the crux of it. We have been lied to. We are deceived. We don't like to admit that, but we are. Because one of the things they were talking about just this week is how inside the body of Christ, how the enemy has been moving, because there's, it's not just one place. This is how you know that there's a movement going on, is when you start talking to other people. Like, you might think that you're isolated, but the number one thing that has happened over the last 24 months, two years, okay, for those of you that uh, go to public school, okay, 24 months, two years, same thing, is that the enemy has gotten into the minds of the believers and has convinced them of a lie and has created division inside of the body of Christ, inside of the church, and individuals who feel like they're doing the Lord's work are literally dividing and splitting churches right now. Scary when you think about it. How easily deceived we can be. And the reason we're easily deceived, and this is something I'm going to get into today, is because we think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We don't humbly bow our hearts before the Lord. We bring God into the equation and we mold Him to fit into our world the way that we want it. We like things a certain way. We all are like that. For that. Like everybody's got a chair at their house that they sit in, right? You like it a certain way and you want it to be in the certain Like don't turn the angle, Amy. Quit moving my chair around. This bugs me, right? You guys have Amy's at your house or is it just me? All right. You see, there's something that's going on there. So let's dive into this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If you're in Christ, you were not fixed you are not rehabbed, you are new. But the key there is if you're in Christ. And that's part of the problem. Is that in the world we live today, 
in Christ does not mean in Christ. In Christ means I believe in God. Let's go on. Romans 8, verse 6. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is an enmity against God, it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are the flesh cannot please God. Carnal mind, spiritual mind. Two different things. Both have astounding results. One is good. One is not good in the eyes of God. One can be good in the eyes of the world. Are we thinking in line with Scripture? That's what spiritually minded means. Carnally minded is are we thinking outside of Scripture? Not a moral question. It's where do we lie? There used to be this saying, and it was, it was, there was a reason for it, is that whatever God says, I'm going with that. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. But that is predisposed to the fact that we believe that God's Word is true. And what's happened in the last couple of years is we've realized that we've talked a big game, we got no substance. Church was exposed. It's created division because people's pride has been hurt. Our pride needs to be hurt. Let's go on. 2 Corinthians 10. Jump down to verse 4. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So how we war in this battle, carnal versus spiritual, we don't go carnal, we go spiritual. We attack things from a spiritual front because from a spiritual front is where things need to be attacked. It's where things come from. It's not a carnal issue. It's not your flesh going out there because some people's flesh can handle more than other people's flesh, just the way it is. You ever uh, seen this show, American Ninja Warrior? You guys know what I'm talking about? You ever seen that show? It's like these incredible obstacle courses, okay? And I remember Isaac, when he was much younger than he is now, was really into this show. And these guys are running get across these things and jumping over walls and swinging on ropes and all this other super cool stuff. And he looked at me, and he was dead serious when he said this. He's like, Dad, you should go on that show. I just looked at him back. I'm like, they can't afford the liability, son. Their flesh can do something that mine can't, or at least won't for right now. You know, that part has nothing to do with it. But spiritually... We have the same abilities, the same tools, the same resources, because the source of those is not this, it is God. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. But we act as if, well, I can't do this, I can't say this, I can't be this way, because I'm not a fill-in-the-blank. I don't have the gift of fill-in-the-blank. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says... That He has equipped us with all things necessary. And that our uh, obedience here to Christ comes to taking every thought captive. That means when the thought comes in, what happens? It must be filtered through the Word. And if it doesn't line up with what the Word said, then it immediately gets thrown out. All of these things are coming against the knowledge of God. If we keep that at the forefront of who He is, and what He's done, and our relationship with Him, then we cannot go wrong. But what happens too often is we begin to blend a little bit of the carnal and a little bit of the spiritual. And I read you guys something a few weeks ago on one of the many, many marketing pieces that I get all the time about how to grow your church. And the methods that they 
adopt are the same methods that one would adopt if they were attempting to do what? Grow their business. And how you grow your business is you've got to make sure that you are in front of customers. But the body of Christ are not customers. You see, this is a spiritual thing that is going on. We don't adopt carnal methods to bring people into the church because our goal is to not bring people into the church. It's to expand the church. And that is done through individuals picking up the mandate of Christ, taking up their cross daily and following Him. And that's where we've missed it as a big C church. Is that we've got this idea, it's like, oh, we need to do things to get people in. Where did one time do you see in Scripture where anybody was invited to attend their service? Not once. What you saw is the people who would put on those services go to the other people. The people who were attending those services go to the other people. That's what you saw. But we've changed it. Do you know why? Because we've been deceived. It removes the burden from us. I don't have to go and do this. It's not my responsibility. Some of the, Boy, I sure hope my neighbors get saved. Boy, I sure hope my kids get saved. Boy, I sure hope my loved ones get saved. We don't talk to them about it. Ephesians 6 verse 11 says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the methods of the devil, the ways that he comes. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant. Your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith. Why is that? How do you stay steadfast in the faith? You've got to know what it is. If you don't know what it is, how can you be steadfast in it? If that faith is moving, is the faith the faith? In other words, the belief system of Christianity a moving target. It's not. Have we moved it? We have. But if you understand what Christianity is, simply followers of Christ, followers of the way, then what he said and what his disciples, the people who were with them every single day for three years, tell us that he said, goes. So your opinion is irrelevant if it's not grounded in that. So the enemy is out looking for someone to devour, and every once in a while he finds one in the church. But it doesn't just say he's looking for people in the church, he's looking for people to devour. That means unbelievers can be devoured, and they are. But when God has equipped us with all things, should we be devoured? No, but are we? Yes, and that is because we have been deceived. We've fallen for it. You see, it comes back to Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all the things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, let's talk about this. Number one comes the authority. How does he have authority? The authority was given to him by the Father. He's seated at the right hand. It's the name above every name. The earth is his footstool. He is the head and we are what? The body. That means that authority has now trickled down to us. We are his imagers. If you read Genesis 1, created in his image, doesn't mean fingers and toes and eyeballs and all of that stuff. It talks about you are created to be his representative on the earth. You are his imager. So now that Christ is no longer here Physically, we pick up the mantle and we carry it. That means when people see us, what should they see? Christ. When they hear us, what should they hear? Christ. That means what he did, we should do. Right? Are we? Nope. And we got a million excuses. Because we've been deceived. So if that authority's been given to him, what does he tell us to do? Because of that, go make disciples. Out of which nations? All of them. What do you do? Well, you baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Those are parts we get. What's the last part? Teach them to observe all things I have commanded. We don't like all those commands. We don't like to be told what to do. That's where our pride gets in. Because someday we're all going to stand before Christ. 
And he's going to look at us and say, what did you do with your time on earth? And if it was, well, I stayed at home. Uh, I prayed, which is good. I fast, which is good. Did you go talk to your neighbor? No, I didn't. I didn't want to bother them. Like, you think about this. Every day we're going to stand before Christ and give an account for what we've done. How are we doing? I'd say not good. What if we got a little proactive? You see, we've been deceived. We've been deceived in the church. The big C church has been deceived because we no longer do these things. We don't teach people all the things that Jesus commanded. What do we do? We teach them some of the things that Jesus commanded. Most of the time we put our spin on it. And we've changed Jesus into the image of us instead of us into the image of him. Now, I read this last week, and this is where we're going to pick up. John chapter 10, verse 10, it says, The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And I have come that they may have life, and they may have it more abundantly. And I introduced an idea to you, one that is a little bit controversial, and I'm okay with that. Because I feel completely in the right here. Is that the thief is not the devil. The thief is the Pharisees. He's talking to the Pharisees. He's dealing with the Pharisees. What did the Pharisees do? It was their responsibility to declare him Messiah. And they didn't do it. Their teaching kept them from declaring him Messiah because he did not fit the narrative that they thought. Now, as I said, if you want to talk about them being deceived and the enemy being behind that, totally cool with that. But we got to get the context. And the context is not the devil. The context is the teachers of the land. They were in charge. And so when he says that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and you may have it more abundantly, he talks about every way that people try to get into the door, but they can't go through the door. They go through a window. That person's a thief. They go through the side. That person's a thief. Because if you have access to the doors, you've got the keys to the door, probably your house, or you at least have access to it. So he goes on and on about that. And talks about it a lot. In fact, it's not the only time that he addresses this. We just hear this verse preached all the time. So I want to show you something today. Something that the, the Lord kind of revealed to me this last week. I was spending some time in prayer, preparing for this week. And something jumped off the page of me that I hadn't caught before. So I want to go to Matthew chapter 16. If you've got your Bibles, open to Matthew chapter 16, verse 1. Now understand this, as I've said, this isn't just me talking. There are a lot of people that are talking about how the church is deceived. It starts individually, it grows from there, and it gets into this big corporate world. And we all adopt these ideas. It goes worldwide, for a matter of fact, because the American church is the beacon of hope and light to the rest of the world. Because they see what we do on TV and on social media, and they assume this is the way that God would have it done. That's not always the case. So... Matthew chapter 16, verse 1. Then the Pharisees and the Sadducees came. So who are we talking about? Now let's stop. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were groups of the Sanhedrin. At this point in time, the Pharisees are in power. The Pharisees are what we would call the legalists. They would know the Scriptures, and they would obey the Scriptures, but there were a lot of laws that they had adopted called fence laws. They were brought in during the time of Ezra because they were in captivity as a result of breaking the commandments of God. And so they would develop this fence, don't cross this, because you have to jump over multiple fences to get to the actual law that you break that caused us to go into captivity. They didn't want that to happen again. The Sadducees did not believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels and a plethora of other things. You can find that in Scripture. It says it there. Just take my word for it for now. 
So the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and what were they doing? Testing him. Now, why were they testing him? Think about it. What were they supposed to do? They had to declare Messiah. This testing him part was not uncommon. This is something they would do. Anytime a Messiah figure would arise, and there were multiples, they would go and they would test him. They asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. And he answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is threatening, uh, red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Now, he's making a, a valid point here. You can look up here, and you talk out of both sides of your mouth with a red sky, right? You can discern that but you can't discern the signs of the times. Now that tells us something. Should they have been able to? Absolutely. He can't call them hypocrites if they wouldn't be able to. God has never held a standard against you that you weren't capable of meeting. Okay? So, you cannot discern the signs of the times. But what does that word hypocrite mean? It's not what you think. It's not say one thing and do another. That's way too simple. If that were the case, every person that's ever existed is a hypocrite. We've all done it. Tell your kids, you don't need them cookies. And the reason you say that is because those are your cookies, right? But the word hypocrite, you see this a lot in Shakespeare's writing and how it was used. It was the image of a person who would put on a mask, who knew what they were portraying themselves is not who they were. These were not people who were just confused or deceived or whatever. These were people who were portraying themselves as something that they were not. These people were portraying themselves as basically God Almighty, and you come to them for all the answers, for all the clues, but truthfully, because they knew the Scriptures, they knew that they weren't right, but they went with it. How do we know that's true? Well, look at all the things they did to make sure Jesus wasn't portrayed as Messiah. They bribed the guards that were guarding the tomb. I mean, all of these different things. They tried to have Lazarus killed after he rose, because it was evidence that he was the Son of God. They were on purpose, keeping Jesus out of the forefront. Now let's go to verse 4. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. And Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now this is the subject. They are now getting a crash course. Who was he just dealing with? The Pharisees and the Sadducees. And what does Jesus warn them about? Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now you've got to understand something. In that culture, in Rome, where they were, or in Jerusalem, where they were, under Roman rule, is that this was the Supreme Court. This was the law of the land. Rome had their laws. But the Jerusalem Jews were allowed to do everything that they needed to do according to their laws without exception, only one thing. And that was they could not enact corporal punishment without the blessing of Rome. They couldn't just kill somebody for breaking the law. That is why that you get Pilate involved and all that stuff later. But he's telling them, the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, you've got to watch out for. Now verse 7, they reasoned among themselves and said, it's because we've taken no bread. A very logical conclusion. They're very hung up on the fact that they forgot the bread. So they assume he's talking about that. Does that make any sense? 
No. Now, we do have the benefit of knowing what's about to happen, but even in that, it's like, how'd you come to that conclusion? But Jesus, being aware of it, he said to them, oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourself because you have brought no bread? Now, look at why he tells them this. Why are you, why are you worried about this? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves and the 5,000 how many baskets you took up? Nor the seven loaves and the 4,000, how many large baskets you took up? How is it you do not understand that I not speak to you concerning bread? In other words, do you think Jesus has a problem with the bakery? No! Why all of a sudden them forgetting bread is a big deal? You didn't see it? You weren't there? Did you forget this slipped past your mind? What else do I have to do? Why does it say, oh, you of little faith? Uh, hello, you've seen it happen twice. You think I can't do it a third time? How is it, verse 11, you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware the leaven of bread, but the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, making a distinction. So now we know what the leaven is. It's the teaching of the thieves. The ones who were stealing Messiah from Israel. That when Jesus went in and rode in to Jerusalem with tears in his eyes, pronouncing judgment upon Jerusalem because they did not recognize him at his coming. Recognize does not mean that they didn't know who he was. They refused to acknowledge him. That is what the word recognize means there. The doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is the thief telling them all the other ways to be right with God except for Messiah standing right in front of them. This is what's happening. And so when we look at this, what do we know? We know that these people were very likely deceived. But were so arrogant that when truth was in front of them, they refused to acknowledge it. Were they correctable? No. Some were. A guy named Nicodemus was. Because he recognized something. He's like, I know nobody can do what you do unless they're sent from God. You do not check the boxes I'm looking for, but there's something to you. And what did we always hear that it said? They were amazed because he taught as someone who had authority. The people were catching it. Nobody apparently was teaching with authority. But the author who was reading the scriptures gives you a little bit of authority. You see, this doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees was a major problem then. It's a major problem now. Because what they were teaching you were the ideas of God, but who God truly was, was not what they were teaching. Now let's go on. Look at this. Verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, so now we know where he is. Caesarea Philippi was a hot spot for false god worship. Okay? Pan was a big god there. You can see it when he says uh, later on after this that the keys of the kingdom have been given to Peter and on uh, the church, I'll build my church here. That's talking about the gates of hell was a place there. It was a worship of Pan. And I showed you guys a picture of that a few weeks ago. So when he came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Now what a profound question. Because what is he asking? He just got done dealing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He just got done dealing with the fact that don't listen to them. Beware their doctrine. And what does he ask? 
Who do they say I am? Now let me ask you this question. Does it matter what any person's opinion on who Jesus is, is? No. Because your opinion on something doesn't change the reality of what that something actually is. So no matter what your thoughts are on any subject, it doesn't change the reality of what it is. Okay, now let's go on. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Verse 14, they say, well, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So now we've got four different answers. Well, some people think, Jesus, that you are John the Baptist. Was he John the Baptist? No. Why did they think that? I don't know. Were they wrong? Certainly. Are they deceived? Maybe. Well, how about Elijah? Some believe that you're Elijah. Was he Elijah? No. So were they wrong? Yes. Well, some think that you were Jeremiah. Was he Jeremiah? No. Or maybe one of the other prophets. Was he one of the other prophets? No. He was none of those things. But that was the answers that the disciples had heard people say all along the way. So they're changing Christ in the image of something else. But he said to them, verse 15, Well, who do you say that I am? Now I'm going to stop you. Does it matter who they say he is? Not necessarily, because it doesn't change who he really is. You guys follow me with this? Verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, did his declaration there make Jesus Messiah? No. Did he need the Pharisees to declare him Messiah? No. Did he need all these other people to accept him as Messiah to make him the Messiah? No. He didn't need any of that. You see, the truth was, he was Messiah. Everybody's opinion is completely irrelevant because it does not change who he is. Simon said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. How did he know he was Messiah? His Father revealed it to him. In what ways? You see, that's the thing. We think about revelation. We always think, well, maybe it was a vision or something like that. The miracles were part of that. Was there supernatural things going on? Absolutely. But we get an idea into Peter's accepting that Jesus was who he said he was in Acts chapter 2. Because in Acts chapter 2, he stands in front of a whole lot of people and tells you exactly who this Jesus was. So you guys know the story. It's the day of Pentecost. And that the Spirit of God is poured out. They hear them praying in tongues. There's uh, all the people around from all the different nations because they had to come back to the temple. So they're at the temple. And they're confused. And some of these, well, what is this? We hear him speaking in our own language. Some assume that he was drunk. Who was right? None of them. That's why Peter stands up. Look at verse 14. Acts chapter 2, verse 14. Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. In other words, listen up. These are not drunk as you suppose since it's the only the third hour of the day. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And where does he turn? To Scripture. The writings of the prophets. 
should come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men see visions. Your uh, old men will dream dreams. Now, here's the thing. Now, stop here. What was believed at the moment that this would happen? This was the messianic time. The time of Messiah is when this was believed then, it was believed now. That when this would be fulfilled would be in the time of Messiah. The time of which prophecy would expound. Verse 18. On my men servants and my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. Blood and fire and vapor smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming and great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So what did he do? He turned to scripture. He didn't say, but look at this, it's the Holy Spirit moving. He's saying, no, 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 this is the fulfillment of what the Father has said. That in this moment, in the time the reign of Messiah, when He comes, He will be poured out. The Spirit of God will be poured out. Watch what He says, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through Him in your midst. As you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. But you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So now what is he doing? He's turning the page to this Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is attested by God through all of his works, of you yourselves know, y'all saw it, y'all heard about it, everybody knows what's going on, You took by lawless hands, and you put him to death, but God raised him up. And what's he do again? Turns to the scripture. For David said concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely of the patriarch. David. Now, he's the author of the passage he just wrote. He's like, let me tell you about David. He's dead. He's buried. And we know where his tomb's at. So being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an, uh, uh, with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. You see what he's doing here? He's pointing that all of this was about Jesus. He foreseen this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Now remember that part. David did not ascend into the heavens, but says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies their footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises to you and your children and to all who are afar off and as many as the Lord our God will call. So how did the Father reveal to Peter that Jesus was Messiah. He just told us. Look at all the prophecies about Messiah that he quoted to show that Jesus was. It always went back to his word. Because his words are his truth. It's always founded in this. You see, where the thief was coming in and creating a doctrine, 
that would lead you away from the Messiah, Jesus came in and warned his disciples, beware their doctrine. And it was all right here in front of them. The church has been deceived. Because what do we do? If you go around and you say, who do men, today, if we go around, who do men say that Jesus is? What are you going to get? A whole bunch of opinions. I think Jesus is loving and merciful. He doesn't judge anybody. Is that true? No. That's not true. How do we know? Because it's declared in His Word. Well, I, I think Jesus is, is coming back with a rage of fire and He's going to wipe out everybody. And if you sin after you're saved, you're going to hell. Is that true? No. See, it always goes back to the Word. It's the same thing that Peter used. How did the Father reveal that to him? He confirmed the words with the signs. You guys see that? It's the same thing. See, we try to make this New Testament stuff fit some mold that is different than the Old Testament stuff, but that's not really true. They lived it. When it says these signs will follow them that believe, for the first time the Spirit of God is upon people and they can do this. But they, the Father confirmed Jesus through the Word with the signs. It's the same thing. And that, my friends, is, is part of our problem. Is we don't even know who Jesus is. Because if it's not, your opinion is not founded in Scripture, then it is unfounded. It is simply an opinion. But even more so than this, or another layer of this, is what we talked about last week. With the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Because we too, the church, has been deceived. While we have an understanding or a belief system in it, some completely reject it, where does this come from? And why does it matter? Now, let's go to John chapter 20. The question comes down to, when we talk about this, is that do we believe that the moment a person is born again, that the Holy Spirit is indwelt in them? And the answer to that is yes, we believe that. But we have to ask the question, the event we just read in Acts 2, is that that moment? In other words, the Spirit within and the Spirit upon, are they one and the same? Now, as I showed you guys last week, before we read this, there are three baptisms shown in Scripture. The first is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit will baptize you into Christ. And I'm not going to rehash all the verses. Go back and listen to it if you missed it. That you are now baptized. Because baptized doesn't mean like we think. It just means immersed. And when somebody was baptized, they would mean they were turning or they were following somebody. So the Holy Spirit baptizes into the body of Christ. By one Spirit, we are baptized into Christ. Then water baptism that we're super familiar with, the disciple will baptize in water. But then Jesus had a role. He's the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. We'll look at those verses momentarily. But they can't be one and the same because grammar will not allow for that. But that's strictly what Scripture doesn't say. It does not say that they are one and the same. We're, we're all seeing different things. So the church today predominantly believes in two baptisms. The baptism into Christ and the baptism in water. Because we believe that the Holy Spirit comes upon us, or comes in us, at the moment of salvation. Now when we look at John chapter 20, we see Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, right? John chapter 20 verse 19 says, In the same day at evening, this is before Jesus goes up, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut and the disciples were simple, for fear of the Jews. Isn't that interesting that they were hiding because they were afraid? And later on, in like Acts chapter 5, they didn't go in hiding, they got really loud. Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. 
And when he had said this, he showed him his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad, and they saw the Lord. And so Jesus uh, said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now here's the question. Did the disciples at that moment receive the Holy Spirit? Sure did. What it says. Am I wrong? I mean, am I missing anything there? I don't think I am. Because Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, in Luke 24, we see this, verse 49. Behold, I send the promise of the Father upon you. Wait in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. Now, we see other parts where it says until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now, here's the question. Did they not receive it in John 20? And he had to wait to actually get it in Acts 2? Or are we not talking about the same thing? And that's the thing. We're not talking about the same thing. You see, receiving the Spirit within is not the same of tarry in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. We read this, but in Joel 2.28, it shall come to pass afterward, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Does it say in all flesh? It doesn't. It says on all flesh. It's not the same thing. So where do we get this idea that the Spirit within and the Spirit upon are not the same thing? Because that is a big belief. Is that when you are born again and the Holy Spirit dwells in you, it's all the Holy Spirit you get. There's not a second blessing, if you will. Well, where does this idea come from? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Well, look at John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So where will he be? That's the New Testament, but where is it at in the Old Testament? You see, they were expecting the Holy Spirit to be within them. This was the time of Messiah. After Messiah comes, they knew that the Holy Spirit would be moving. It was an expectation. See, this goes back to the promise of the covenant in Ezekiel chapter 36. Start at verse 22. Ezekiel 36, verse 22. It says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nation shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. Now, that's a sign of a salvation experience, okay? You're cleansed. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come, right? I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues, and you will keep my judgments and do them. You see, this is talking about that salvation experience. This is a part of that new covenant. And with that new covenant, that the Holy Spirit would now dwell inside of us. Why is that? Because now flesh and blood is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now think about this time when he's writing this. This is profound. Because he's talking about the Shekinah glory. 
And where did the Shekinah glory reign? Inside the Holy of Holies in the temple. You could not go in there. Only one guy could. He had to follow a whole bunch of rigmarole to get in there, but one day a year he could. But that's where the presence of God was. And in order for people to experience the presence of God in any way, what did they have to do? You got to go to the temple. So when Solomon Hanukkah, the temple, which means dedicated, dedicated the temple, what happened? The presence of God, the Spirit of God was so strong, they couldn't even get into the place. It was knocking them down. So there's something due to that. But could you experience that anywhere else in that moment? No. Because the Spirit of God was in the Holy of Holies at the temple. But suddenly, with this new covenant, and you see this all over the place, we're a temple not made with hands. We take the Spirit of God to the world. It's different. It's not the same. That's why he talks about be the light of the world. Let your light shine before men. There were lights that drew people to the temple. There should be lights that draw people to you. But we're not talking about the same thing because let's look at this, Matthew chapter 3. Remember I told you last week, there's only four things that are found in all four Gospels. Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and then this last part, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Matthew 3, 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. This is John the Baptist speaking. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Who is he? He is Jesus. Mark 1, verse 8, I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus. Mark 3, verse 6, or Luke 3, verse 16, John answered, said to, to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. In John 1, 33, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So who's doing the baptizing? It is Jesus. It cannot be the same thing. The Spirit within and the Spirit upon are not one and the same. It is a doctrine that used to be held, but the church has been deceived. It has been taken from us. There are things attached to that that we'll get into soon. But you've got to understand this. Did Jesus want his disciples to go into all the world unequipped? No. He said, you wait in Jerusalem. But he'd already given them the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them. He said, receive the Holy Spirit. So either he was just a little wacky that day. He'd been through a lot. It's possible. Or he's not talking about the same thing. The reason I'm showing you this is because the thief has stolen this from the church. The doctrine and teaching has made this so blasphemed in the ears of the hearer. You have to understand something. When I am talking to other ministers that aren't from our sect, our world, and we're talking about various subjects and we're going through scriptures and stuff like that, and they'll always ask, this always comes up in one way or another, what denomination are you, or something, where did you go to school, or any of those types of things. The moment I tell them that I have a charismatic background, and I attended Rama, which is a word of faith school, they all, it happens every time, they look at you and they're like, that can't be, because you know the word. You know what? A lot of people know the word. See, I'm charismatic because Jesus was. I showed you this. Let me show you this again. 1 John 5, verse 7. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, 
The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. What's he talking about here? Well, that's interesting. Father, the Word being Jesus, the Holy Spirit. We talk about these three baptisms. We see it. When I get saved, I become a new creation. When I'm water baptized, the old man is buried. It's a symbol that I am now a follower of Christ. That old man is now buried, and then the new man is resurrected with Jesus. And when I'm baptized in the Holy Spirit, I now have the power to walk in the fullness of the new covenant and every promise that Jesus has given. The question always comes back to, how many baptisms do I have? Truth is, most of us have two. We were baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit, and we were baptized into water by a disciple. But many of us have ignored this last part because we either feel like it's not necessary, we didn't need it, or we are taught that it's not biblical. And I could show you more scriptures. I'm not done. Let's go here real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I always like to show you guys how these things play out. I read this last week. I'll read it again. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized. Important word. Does that mean they're all dunked? No. Into Moses, into cloud, and in the sea. Now, Moses, type of Christ. Cloud is the Holy Spirit. Sea would be water, obviously. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. With, but with the, uh, most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things have become our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted and do not become idolaters as were some of them as it is written. The people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages have come. What were all these things? That they were all baptized into Moses, in the cloud, and in the sea. The idea of the three baptisms is even into the Old Testament and what we call typology. Now, a result of this is a new man walking in the fullness and the power of the Holy Spirit as Jesus had intended. Wait in Jerusalem. In Acts 3, we see this. We know this story. He's going into the temple. The gate called beautiful. A landman from birth sitting there begging looking for money. He looks him straight in the eye and says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus. Rise up and walk. Reach his hand down, picked him up, walks in with him into the temple. Everybody's looking around. They're amazed. They're shocked. Like, isn't that the guy? That's the guy, right? Pretty sure that's the guy. And look at verse 11. Now as a lame man who was healed had held on to Peter and John, and all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazing. You understand, Solomon's porch was huge. There were a lot of people around. And Peter saw, and watch how he responds. Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? In other words, why are you surprised? Or why look at us as though by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? So Peter didn't do it. It wasn't based on what he could do. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. Who did that? The God that they were worshipped glorified the Son, whom you delivered up 
and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead of which we are witnesses. And his name through faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him the perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Why did Jesus tell him to wait in Jerusalem? Because that moment doesn't happen outside of that. The expectation, we call it a secondary whatever you want to call, but it's really not. A fulfilled person in the new covenant has all three baptisms. Is it scriptural? 100%. Then why has it been so denounced and so taken away? Because we don't want anything weird. We've allowed the thief and all his teachings to come in and teach us to stay away from this stuff. We're going to continue to build upon this. Guys, this is what's missing in the church today. Because you have individuals that walk in the fullness and power of the Holy Spirit. It was never intended for a person here or a person there. It was intended for the body of Christ. We've got to grow into this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is what guides us and leads us, and it is the truth. And it doesn't matter what men say you are or who you are or how you look or what your promises are. It only matters who you truly are and the promises that you've given because when you give them, you mean them. And so, Lord, we give you glory. And I thank you that you are giving us an opportunity to get things right. That we will swallow our pride. And we will not be so stubborn and hard-headed to miss out on exactly what you have for us. That everything that you've given us is to walk in the fullness and power of this new covenant that you have provided for us. And so, Lord, we are grateful for those opportunities. And, Lord, I thank you that you are opening doors every single day that we will walk through them. That we will not just sit around our house and do nothing, but we will be on mission for you doing the work that you've called us to do. That nobody is exempt from the spreading of the gospel. We don't get a day off, but we follow you. We give you the glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. We got food, so don't forget. <laughs>